0: This summer we have been uh, working our way through James's letter to some early Christian communities. James was the half-brother of Jesus, so you can imagine, you know, the resurrection had to have been true. Is, is your brother going to convince you that he's the son of God? Uh, James is he's calling the church to authentic faith. He's calling them to actually put the teachings of Jesus into practice in our everyday lives. And at the core of that vision is a commitment to humility to setting aside one's ambitions for power and wealth and status and comfort and following Jesus on the path of downward mobility, becoming like a child, becoming like a servant. Uh, Last week, uh, James had some some really harsh words uh, for the rich uh, in his community who were oppressing the poor, especially uh, verses 5, 1 to 6. And he confronts their practice of, of hoarding, uh, withholding wages, living in luxury and self-indulgence, and using their power and their wealth to rig the system against the poor. And he said, because of these things, judgment is coming. So James doesn't pull any punches. But of course, you know, most of the people in James's churches were poor. So what does James have to say to them? What word does he have for those who are who are the ones being oppressed? What might it look like for those without power, without status, to live an authentic faith? And James ba- basically says three things to them: he says, be patient, don't grumble, and persevere. Uh, what you're going through is really hard, uh, but be patient. Don't take matters into your own hands, don't try to even the score. God is a just judge, and he promises one day to set the world to rights. Now, does this mean that Christians should never stand up to injustice? Not at all. It just means that there are certain ways of doing that that are off the table. Christians don't seek vengeance. We don't resort to violence. We don't crucify people in the court of public opinion. We'll dig more into this later, but that's the first command for them, be patient. Second is don't grumble, don't condemn the rich, don't look down on them, don't harden your hearts against them. And then thirdly, stand firm, persevere, don't quit, no matter how hard things get. So James says to the poor who are being oppressed, be patient, Jesus will set things right. In the meantime, don't grumble, don't talk smack about your oppressors, and don't quit. Now, let's be honest. None of this sounds very American, does it? James says nothing about, you know, standing on your rights, demanding fair treatment. He doesn't urge uh, the poor in these churches to organize and to create a pressure campaign against the rich. He doesn't suggest calling up a few journalists to expose the corruption. None of that. Instead he says, "Be patient." I mean, shouldn't he, shouldn't he say, "Be outraged? We read the list? I mean, those sins should make us angry, shouldn't they? I mean, this hardly seems like good advice. Anybody have questions for James? I do. So let's, let's put James on the dock this morning. Defend yourself, pastor. First, why? the command to be patient. And James would say, because the Lord is coming. The farmer can wait because he knows the rains are coming. He knows there will be a harvest. Likewise, Christians can be patient because we know that one day Jesus will return and he will set the world to rights. He will hold people accountable. He will restore justice and make all things new. And therefore, we don't need to even the score. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. It's not ours. We don't have all the information. Sometimes we say we want justice, but in our hearts, we really want vengeance. We really want to make people suffer. And James says, be patient, because when we take matters into our own hands, often our ego gets in the way. James says, be patient because God is patient. Psalm 13 says, how long, O Lord? How long before you do something about the evil that's just running amok down here? How long do we have to wait for vindication, for deliverance? Why are you so slow in bringing about justice? If you have ever desperately cried out to God for justice, God's patience can be an enormous source of frustration. Why is God so slow to bring about justice? Second Peter three nine says the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Similarly Ezekiel 33:11 says as surely as I live declares the sovereign lord I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked but rather that they turn from their ways and live What's he saying He's saying that God's patience is actually a function of his mercy God is patient because he's merciful towards sinners He wants to give people more time to repent, to turn from our wicked ways and be reconciled to God and to one another. When James says to the oppressed poor, be patient, he's actually inviting them into God's heart. He's inviting them to become merciful, to hold out hope that by God's grace, people can be redeemed. People can be changed. Do you remember Zacchaeus, the tax collector? Short little guy, cozied up with Rome, the oppressor. Not only did that, but he used the power of his position to exploit his neighbors, most of whom were poor. Until the day he met Jesus and brought him home. And on that day he said, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Sometimes people change. Sometimes self-indulgent people become generous. Sometimes exploiters become benefactors. Sometimes persecutors become protectors. We don't know how anyone's story ends. Who will be the next Zacchaeus? James tells us to wait patiently for God's justice in part so that we will become merciful like God is merciful. When I was growing up, my mom had a a children's bookstore. Some of you have heard this story before. When I was about 10, uh, my mom discovered that her bookkeeper uh, had been stealing money from the business, Um, tens of thousands of dollars. It was devastating. Watching how my mom responded was one of the most powerfully formative experiences of my childhood. My mom fired her, of course, and pressed charges. But she also forgave her, pursued her, spent time with her, found ways to show kindness to her. One of the first jobs this woman got was as a waitress and we went to her restaurant, requested a table in her section, and my mom gave her a generous tip. My mom was seeking justice, not vengeance. She was also hoping and praying for her bookkeeper's redemption. My mom was patient. She trusted that Jesus would make things right in his time. And my mom was hopeful. She really did believe that God could give this woman a new heart. It was a painful experience. It was incredibly stressful. My mom lost her business. And yet through it all, my mom's heart was being drawn more deeply into God's own heart. We don't become merciful people by living a charmed life. We become merciful by suffering at the hands of other people and then asking God to bless them. Which is what my mom did every day, day after day, even as her own losses were piling up. Be patient because God is just. Be patient because God is patient, because God is merciful. James tells the poor and oppressed to be patient so that they will cultivate hope. All justice on this side of the New Jerusalem is incomplete. My mom's bookkeeper had to face a judge. The judge said to her, I am not going to put you in jail, even though that's what you deserve. Instead, you will work for the rest of your life, and I will garnish your wages. And for the rest of your life, Catherine Hodgman's name will be on every paycheck you receive. He was a good judge. Well, the bookkeeper died before she finished paying my mother back. But even if she had paid her back in full financially, how could a judge ever compensate for the feelings of betrayal my mom suffered? For the trust that was shattered between them, for the fact that her store no longer exists. There is no perfect justice on this side of heaven. And if we think that getting even is going to satisfy us, we're wrong. (laughs) There's an episode of The Office in which Pam, uh, a receptionist, is furious with her boss, Michael, because he's dating her mom. And finally, Michael says to Pam, what do you you want? And Pam says, I want to hit you. That's what I want. I want to hit you. And there's this big lead up, but they get to the end of the episode and she smacks him across the face, right in front of the whole office. And afterwards, she's walking away, and her husband, Jim, comes alongside of her and says, do you feel better? And she goes, no. No. Vengeance will never satisfy our craving for justice, no matter how much you make the other person pay. When James says, be patient, he's telling his hearers that one day, one day, our longing for perfect justice will be satisfied. Not because of what we do, but because of what Christ does for us. Until then, we work for justice, we show mercy, and we cultivate hope. Eugene Peterson captures this so well in his translation of Romans 8, in the middle part of that chapter. He writes, all around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The Spirit of God is arousing us within. We are also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us. Oh, Paul and James would have got along so well. Any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. When we wait patiently for God's justice, when we wait patiently for Jesus to make things right, we are enlarged with hope. And that hope purifies us and even, even causes us to rejoice. We can wait patiently in hardships because the judge is coming. And he will make all things new. And we can wait patiently because God is patient. Because God is merciful. And as we wait, we change. We become patient. We become merciful. We become hopeful. All right, so far it's James 1, us 0. All right, why does James tell his readers not to grumble? I mean, he even goes so far as to say that if we grumble against our oppressors, we will be judged. What is going on? Well, that word grumble means to criticize or condemn. It's a form of pride. To, To grumble against someone is to say, I'm good and they're evil. I'm redeemable, they're not. And we talk like this because for a few fleeting moments, it makes us feel powerful. It makes us feel like less of a victim, especially when we get together with some other people and and do it together. The problem is that we're, we're talking about people who've hurt us instead of talking with them. And what we're really doing is we're hardening our hearts against them. We're sealing off ourselves from the possibility of future reconciliation and peace. Jesus said, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Don't grumble, don't stand off to the side in your little tribe and tell yourself that you're good and they're evil. The reality is much more complicated Instead, we should do what Jesus says in the very next verses. He says, ask, seek, and knock. And I think this applies to our relationships with one another just as much as it applies to our relationships, our relationship with God. Don't complain about people behind their backs. Speak truth in love to them directly. The next time you gather as a church, I can imagine James saying last, you know, say something like this. Last week, my wages were withheld and my kids went to bed hungry twice and see what happens. The next time you gather as a church, say, I cannot afford to support my family on my income, even though I work hard six days a week and see what happens. We need to have better conversations than complaining about people behind their backs. Grumbling is easy, but it doesn't actually change anything, does it? Change comes through the hard work of speaking the truth in love, being vulnerable, asking for what you need. Not grumbling is important if we want to have healthy relationships in the church. It's also important if we want the church to have a powerful and effective witness in the culture. If Christians get together to complain and backbite If a church forms coalitions instead of cultivating unity, guess what? Nobody wants to be part of a community like that. Some of us have have been in toxic churches, and you just want to run away as fast as you can. The church is a community of the reconciled. Christians are meant to be agents of reconciliation. Peacemakers, the church is a fellowship of natural enemies who have become family through the blood of Jesus. Don't grumble. Don't even be a safe person to complain to. If somebody comes to you and starts complaining about someone else, interrupt them before they get to the end of their first sentence and say, have you spoken with them? And if they say no, say, go talk to them before you talk to me. And if they say yes and nothing happens, say, all right, let's go together. Be patient. Our merciful God will one day set the world to rights. Don't grumble. Our peace and Jesus' reputation depends on it. All right, why does James tell his readers to stand firm and persevere? Well, before we can answer that, we have to answer an even more fundamental question. What is a human life for? Why are we sucking wind on this planet? Everything hinges on that question, doesn't it? If the purpose of a human life is to boost one's economic opportunity, or to maximize pleasure and minimize pain, or to gain as much status and power as you possibly can, or to fulfill as many of your desires and ambitions as you possibly can, then everything James has said so far is terrible advice. Completely worthless. But if the purpose of a human life is to know God and become like Him, then James' prescription is absolutely perfect. Do you remember how James' letter began? He said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God's goal for your life has nothing to do with status, wealth, comfort, ease, fame, followers. It has nothing to do with vacations, homes, promotions, designer pets, or designer children. God is not remotely interested in any of those things. His goal is to make you mature and complete, not lacking anything. And therefore, anything that makes you more dependent on Jesus and less dependent on yourself, anything that makes you more hopeful in Jesus and less dependent on the things of this world, anything that makes you more like Jesus is ultimately good for you. Friends, do we see how empowering this is? Do you see what good news this is? Our world is filled with people who are defeated, who are hopeless, who are filled with resentment and regret because things haven't worked out the way they wanted them to. They're not making it socially or economically like they hoped they would, and that may be you. The gap between where you are in life and where you want to be could be really far apart. I don't know if it's going to close the side of heaven or not. I have no idea. And James comes along, and he says, you know what? You can be poor and live a beautiful life. You could never be promoted again and live a beautiful life. You could be misunderstood by your peers and live a beautiful life. You could be rejected and disowned by your own family and live a beautiful life. You could live and die in low-income housing and live a beautiful life. God's dream for your life is to make you more like Jesus. And he will use whatever he can get his hands on to help get you there. He will allow things to enter your life that will humble you and possibly even humiliate you. He will strip you of your sense of being in control. He will take away people and things that, w- that are precious to you. He may block opportunities and access to earthly comforts that you have set your heart on, that you've said, this is what I need in order to be happy and fulfilled. He may allow trials to enter into your life that you never, ever would have signed up for. And even though God will never leave you nor forsake you, you may experience seasons of feeling His absence acutely. And why? Because God's goal is to make you more like Jesus. And in order to do that, He has to strip us of our pride and self-sufficiency. Those things have to go. He has to rid us of the illusion that we are in control. He has to make us wait so that we can learn to be patient. He has to delay so that we can cultivate hope. (laughs) James talks about the prophets. They had a tough go. Can you imagine working your whole life, (laughs) speaking a message that nobody listens to? I mean, their life work, which was agonizing, was largely ignored Jeremiah was thrown into a cistern. Zechariah was murdered. But they didn't quit. They stuck with the assignment because they believed that their words were powerful and true. Job lost everything. He was the truly innocent sufferer, even though he had to endure every kind of loss, every kind of trial. He came out of it humbled and enlarged. He even told his friends before it was over I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. How my heart yearns within me. Job was being enlarged by his suffering. He was pregnant with hope. Friends, the best version of you is on the other side of hardships. We heard from John and Gail Hutchinson this week that they would be uh, retiring from Wycliffe Bible translators after 40-plus years. They almost didn't make it past the first year. I think they were in Thailand. They were, they were far away. They were adjusting to uh, a new family. They were, they were adjusting to the culture and the language, and they just about quit. And uh, Jerry Bricker, who was a staff pastor at the time, flew out there for a few weeks to encourage them and to pray with them. And they stuck with it. And they stuck with the assignment. And they stuck with it for 40-plus years across multiple continents. And John and Gail, oh, man, their lives are beautiful. I don't think they would have got there without those hardships. And they're not done growing. Jesus told His disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be rejected by the religious leaders, and be crucified, and then on the third day be raised to life. And if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. In other words, the life that we signed up for when we decided to follow Jesus includes suffering. It includes rejection. It requires dying to ourselves and to our ambitions every single day. There are tens of thousands of little deaths between us as we are right now and the version of ourselves that is mature and complete. And there's no other way to get there. We have to die to ourselves tens of thousands of times. Do you believe this? Do you believe that on the other side of dying to yourself is maturity and completeness and beauty? Do you believe that on the other side of hardship is a version of yourself that is conformed more and more to the image and likeness of Jesus, the true human? Do you believe that on the other side of perseverance and praying for wisdom and pressing into God rather than leaning on our own wits is a version of you that will take our breath away? Do you believe this? James, I don't know if you notice. anger is this whole passage, these three hard commands in a vision of who God is. And everything hinges on who God is. Bob Goss reminded a, a few of us this week of a quote from A.W. Tozer that the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think about God. Everything hinges on who God is. God is the just judge who arrives right on time. God is merciful and compassionate, which James includes in this passage. God is slow to anger. He's patient. He doesn't want anyone to perish. Everything God does, everything that he demands, everything that he allows is motivated by his mercy and compassion towards us. When we face trials, and some of you are facing trials right now, when we face trials, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remind ourselves and each other of these truths, of who God is. When we have to endure difficult people, or when people harm us, or threaten us, or threaten the people we love, when we're ground down by a world that is filled with injustice and oppression, we need to remind ourselves that God is just, and that He will one day set the world to rights. We need to remind ourselves that God is patient and merciful and He gives us time to repent. We need to remind ourselves that God will use anything He can get His hands on to form us more and more into the image and likeness of His Son. We need to remind ourselves that God will not waste anything that comes into our lives. That God works all things for the ultimate good of those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. We need to remind ourselves that our hardships are not punishment. Sometimes they're the natural consequence of foolish decisions. But if we go through life thinking every hardship, every trial is is God's active judgment on us, it will drive a wedge between us and God. Rather, James wants us to know that our hardships are opportunities to press into God, to ask for wisdom, to learn patience, to cultivate hope, to become more like God. Jesus, to stop trusting in ourselves, to stop clinging to worthless idols that cannot save us or satisfy us or forgive us, and instead cling to Christ. All of this points to Jesus, who was not only our just judge, who was not only our merciful Savior, but who is the true human, who waited patiently for 18 years for God to say, all right, buddy, it's time to start moving and shaking, who stood firm in the face of temptation, who resisted the pressure to put on a false self when the crowd kept telling him what to do, who stood firm in the face of ridicule and rejection, who bowed his head into the wave of God's wrath, so that we might experience God's mercy. Who endured the cross and scorned its shame so that we could share in Christ's glorious victory. I want to invite our communion servants to come forward. Jesus,